Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. This is my privilege today to be able to open up the Word of, of God with you this morning. and <clears throat> I'm just going to... Um, ask you to pray with me one more time this morning uh, before we get into that, if you would. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the bread and the cup. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your provision for our souls. Thank you for your word this morning. Where would we be without, uh, without your word? Thank you for all those who have come to be together in this place today, where would we be without the body of Christ? Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to walk this journey alone. Not only do we have the, the assurance of your presence in our lives, but we have one another as well. Help us to press into that unity that, that Wally spoke of. Lord, it's a, ra- a rare thing in these days to have the type of unity that press through the conflicts and differences of opinion and and even sometimes uh, hurt, hurtfulness and hurt feelings, Lord. But um, Lord, we thank you that the blood of Jesus is more powerful than all these things. And as we open your word today and as we consider what you'd have for us, Lord, that you would be, be inclined to speak to our hearts and uh, open your word to us. May your spirit be our teacher. And may we have hearts to hear and, and, uh, and to obey. We just come before you, Lord, ready and, and waiting and expecting that you're going to do something great in our lives today because you are great and we worship you as the great and holy God. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our three-year uh, journey through the Bible that we're on, we are in the patriarchs, uh, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, you might wonder what exactly is a patriarch. So rather than point out some of the old people here this morning, I will quote the Oxford Dictionary, which says simply, the male head of a family or tribe. uh, Merriam-Webster has one of the scriptural fathers of the human race or of the Hebrew people. The word means father, and as you may be aware, Um, The word translated father in the Old Testament um, repeatedly uh, can mean either father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-grandfather, and you get the idea, means ancestor um, in that sense. And so uh, they only have one term, and they used it for all those situations. And so the term comes to us uh, loaded loaded with the values of respect and um, honor, gratitude, and even authority. This is not a subject, nor are these terms, terms that really are only important in the Old Testament. Um, These materials the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their stories are very important for us, too, to be versed in. 
And you don't have to take my word for that. All you need to do is read through even the New Testament. And you will see there that the name Abraham occurs in the New Testament 74 times. To put that in perspective, the name David, that's the King David, uh, the Old Testament of uh, David and Goliath fame, his name occurs in the New Testament 57 times, which is pretty impressive, but Abraham's name occurs many more times in the New Testament. Only Moses uh, is a name that occurs more times in the New Testament than Abraham occurs. But I would remind you that when God first reveals himself to Moses in the west side of the wilderness in Exodus chapter 3, God speaks there and says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that becomes a pattern throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. So it's very hard to overestimate the importance of this person or these persons and their stories, their lives, and how God met with them and how God revealed himself to, to them and uh, the things that God revealed about himself that are still very, very relevant to you and to me. Um, these are these uh, passages that we are studying in these days represent a theological watershed for the entire uh, scripture. Of course, there's passages like Hebrews 11 where uh, the author recounts the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament and he spends more time on Abraham than any other person. It's interesting, eh? And then there are other passages. Um, Jason mentioned a couple weeks ago, Romans chapter 4, which speaks a lot about Abraham and his faith. And uh, uh, Romans 9 through 11, uh, and Galatians chapter 3, the entire chapter. But let me just, let me just before we get into uh, Genesis 24 this morning, let me just, uh, just take you to Galatians 3 and just consider with me a, a few uh, portions brief portions from Galatians 3, starting with these verses, Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That makes the account of Abraham extremely pertinent and relevant for you and, and for, for me. And the reason that Paul, uh, Paul can say this in Galatians 3 is that his argument springs from a point that he's already made. If you go back to verse 16, it says there, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring which is Jesus, the Christ. So when Abraham, God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and re reversed it or um, reiterated in chapter 15 and 17 that, he, that his seed would inherit the land and become a blessing to all the nations, he was talking about who? Jesus. And that's why the genealogies in the New Testament are very important in Luke uh, and, in, and in Matthew, where they occur. 
so take uh, note of what Paul is saying here, that the promise made to Abraham was Christ. And check out this statement earlier on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is, that, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We had that song we used to sing when we were kids. He had many sons, right? <laughs> I'm one of them and so are you. I don't know if you think of yourself as a child of Abraham, but the Bible uh, teaches uh, that you are if you know Jesus Christ. That makes you a child of Abraham uh, by faith. And, and uh, so that we could go on and survey scriptures about how important this is. There's all kinds of passages. Jesus in, in Luke talks about a, a man dying and going to the Abraham's bosom. So it's, it's, it occurs over and over and over and over. And so it's very significant. But today we're in Genesis 24. And the curriculum... Uh, today, uh, entitles today's uh, lesson or message, God provides for his promise. The promise of God and the provision of God uh, is and has been and will be a consistent theme uh, throughout Scripture and certainly throughout the, the narrative of the patriarchs. Last week, Nick spoke from Genesis 22, where God tested Abraham by calling on him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But we learn there that God already had prepared a sacrifice. That ram caught in the thicket was already prepared by God for the sacrifice. And God never had any intention that Abraham would actually sacrifice his son. But the scripture says there that he was putting, he was testing Abraham's faith to show us what sacrificial faith looks like and ultimately to show us what he would do in giving his son. And God didn't spare, Romans chapter uh, eight, uh, uh, six, 5, 6, and 8, God didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. So, uh, and of course, Genesis 22, this, the account of Abraham and Isaac where, where uh, Abraham says, he says he, he named that, that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And um, it's interesting. I, I, I just throw this in as a bit of a tidbit, uh, that as I was studying through uh, these passages over the recent weeks and listening to the guys preach and all, uh, that the, the word there to provide, uh, the, the principal meaning of that word is to see. And it becomes uh, nuanced in its meaning to mean provide in the same way that we would say in English, you need to see to that. Isn't that interesting? God saw to it. I thought that was I thought that was kind of uh, kind of neat. And then uh, this theme of providence uh, in relation to God's attributes and God's character continue throughout Scripture, and of course they culminate where. Where did the theme of God's providence culminate? At the cross. The provision, the providing of Jesus. Right? And, uh, and we're going to see it continue throughout the Old Testament. In a few weeks' time, we'll be learning uh, and paying attention to Joseph. If you've ever read the story of Joseph and his brothers in, in Egypt and, and all of that, the providence of God is just so powerfully illustrated in those passages. It's just, it's, it's just so, so wonderful. But today, God provides a wife 
for Isaac. <coughs> so if you're a young guy here today and you're looking for a wife, you want to pay special attention. Actually, how many of you today here are single? Put your hand up if you're single. Oh, no, but nobody. Okay. It's, it's, it's not a shameful thing, okay? It's not a shameful thing to be single. How many, how many of you are married and would like to be single? No. Just kidding. <laughs> we're not going to go there. Today we're, we're learning about how God provided a wife for Isaac. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, God had promised Abraham that his son Isaac would be the heir of the promise of a great nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And for that to happen, Isaac was going to need to have children. And for that to happen, those children were going to need a mother. And you know how that works, right? This is not rocket science. And so today, uh, we're in Genesis 24. So here we go. Are you ready? Genesis 24. It's a, it's a long passage. We're going to read most of it. We're not going to read every single bit of it. But, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> but we're going to start in Genesis 20, 24. Now Abraham was old. Uh, what do you do when you get old? <laughs> you get cranky. <laughs> that temptation is always there, Derek. In fact, I think that temptation's there when you when you're young too. Um, how many of you are familiar with the name Eric Erickson? Pretty cool name. Erickson means son of Eric. So Eric, son of Eric. Eric Erickson. He's a secular psychologist. Uh, he has a he was the pioneer of modern developmental psychology, and uh, I got the opportunity to learn a little bit about him when I was in school, and uh, it was interesting. He uh, proposed a theory that each stage of life is associated with a specific psychological struggle. And so as we go through the seasons of life, the struggle changes. And he, he proposed the theory that, uh, that when you start to get into middle age, you, uh, you, your struggle is between what he called generativity and stagnation. And so he actually coined the word generativity, and you may not be familiar with it. Uh, psychologists use it, and so do uh, engineers now are using it as well. Um, um, but uh, he defined generativity as a concern for establishing and guiding the next generation. What do you do when you get old? Well, you do a lot of things, and hopefully some you don't do. But one of the things that characterizes the aging in our lives is we start thinking more and more about succeeding generations. Am I right? I hope I'm right on this. I hope that he was right about this. He was, uh, a, he was a secular psychologist and largely influenced by Freud, and a lot of what he said was just not really uh, on the mark, but, but some of it was, and I hope he's right about this part, that as we get older, we start thinking more about the, about the importance of helping and encouraging and nurturing and providing for younger generations that are coming along behind us. And he called it generativity, and I, I think it's... Uh, I think it's a good thing. He further defined it as the ability to transcend personal interests to provide care and concern for a younger generation. And uh, I think that that's a, that's a, good, a good thing. Uh, Nick, last Sunday in Genesis 22, mentioned uh, Abraham's legacy. And that's the idea, right? So Abraham is old. And what's on his mind? the next generation. Now, he had a, he had a, a 
son. Actually, he had more than one son, but he had a promised son. But, but uh, no grandchildren. You know what that's like? have children and that's great and then they grow up and then it's like okay guys right? nice to have some grandbabies <laughs> Genesis 24 1 and Abraham was old well advanced in years and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things but he had no grandchildren And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham's master and swore to him concerning this matter. We don't know if this was uh, Eliezer, uh, the servant of uh, Abraham that's mentioned in, in Genesis uh, 15, but it's likely that he was. And he was the most aged and most trusted servant that Abraham had. And so he chose him and sent him on this journey. Find a wife for his son, Isaac. The subject of arranged marriages comes up. How many of you uh, are like me and you absolutely love Fiddler on the Roof? No, three or four. Uh, I know. It's, it's a thing, right? But I just, I, I love musicals, and Fiddler on the Roof is probably, like, maybe my favorite musical. I absolutely love it. And I love that scene where... where um, Tevya and Golda. Tevya has just talked to his children, uh, one of his daughters, I forget which one, is getting married, and he says, and he, they're, they're going to get married, and they never ask him for his blessing or anything, but now they're here asking for his blessing. It's like, why do you want to marry this guy? It's because I love him. And he's just like, you love him, you love him. What's this, all this love talk? And then he goes back in the house, and he looks at Golda, who's been his wife for many, 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 many years, and he starts to sing, Golda, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and trouble in town, you're upset. You want out. Go inside. Go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Gold, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleansed your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? And he says, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. She says, I was shy. He says, I was nervous. She says, so was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. So now I'm asking you, Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 
<laughs> for 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And he says, then you love me? She says, I suppose I do. And he says, and I suppose I love you too. And then together they sing, it doesn't change a thing, but even so, uh, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Yeah, isn't it great? I love it. I absolutely love it. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, if you haven't seen Filler on the Roof, done well, you, you do yourself a favor because the cultural context of the Jews being forced out of uh, Russia is a phenomenal, uh, or, I think, or was that Russia or is that Poland? Somewhere up in the Baltic states there. And, uh, well, yeah, my, my history, I'm more fond of history than I am geography, unfortunately. But anyways, um, we scoff at those old traditions, right? Um, and, and, and we're even seeing in our day a complete abdication of the role of parents to guide, to teach, to mentor, and to train children in the essential values of, uh, and life skills. And uh, we have, uh, we're part of a generation where parents are giving up their rights and their responsibilities and giving them over to the state and to the culture to raise our children. And we absent ourselves from their lives. We absent ourselves from the choices they make in their lives because we feel it's not our place. We have this, uh, in our culture, this condescending attitude to the ways of the fathers. So much so that we've charted a whole new course and we're so smug we don't even recognize the signposts on the road to our new destination. I hope you see them. And as we read on in this uh, account, we're going to see it's not so much about being forced to make certain decisions, but rather it is a question of whether or not you respect someone enough to consider their, their guidance in your life. There's a few other things thrown in there, but We'll uh, talk about them in a moment. But why would Abraham send his servant in search of a wife for Isaac back to the homeland? Is this a, an example of Scripture condoning a form of, uh, of racism or tribalism? If you conclude that, then you will miss the point in this story. Uh, because that's not what this is about. This is not some kind of condemnation of racial inter, or interracial marriage. Some commentators or some Bible um, students would attempt to make this as some kind of a statement against interracial marriage. I don't like the term interracial marriage because I don't believe there's more than one race. I believe that there's a human race, and that's uh, the only race uh, there is. Um, but <clears throat> that's not what this is about. This is about. It's not about uh, skin color or language or anything like that. Rather, this would be an Old Testament precedent that we're seeing here and we're studying, think about it here today, an Old Testament precedent for the New Testament command not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and to marry, to quote Paul, in the Lord. And as we go through here, I hope that we'll see that. You know, later on in the Revelation, you have uh, situations like Rahab, and I'm not, we don't have time to go into that this morning, uh, but I hope you will read about Rahab and about Ruth, the Midianite, 
uh, um, who were uh, brought into the family of God and into the lineage of Christ, even though they weren't part of the Jewish people. And so um, I, I just kind of tossed them things out for you there for you to think about, but really we need to move on. Um, so suffice it to say that this was an attempt by Abraham to protect his son from the false gods of the people of the land in which he lived. And it wasn't because Abraham's family all back home all knew and worshipped the one true God because they clearly didn't. And we'll see that as scripture unfolds as well. But the point is that taking a young girl from her native land, from her home in native land, would mean that she would be far less likely to, be, to, uh, to succumb to the, um, the uh, uh, allegiances to local deities. And we'll see some other things as well as we read on too uh, in this account and in the accounts to follow about the rationale for some of those things. So Abraham has learned a lot about trusting God up to this point. He's learned a lot. He's, he's, he's old. He's been through a lot. He's seen a lot. And he's learned a lot. And he's learned a lot about trusting God. And I think trusting God for his provision comes out strongly in this whole in this whole passage. Let's read some more. Let's read uh, uh, from verse 10 following. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and he departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my father, or master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the, man, uh, the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who say, shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love toward my master might want to note there that when, and you probably did note that when um, uh, Eleazar prays, he says, um, it says that he uh, prayed uh, in Abraham's name. Right? He said, uh, O Lord, uh, God of my master Abraham. And you might wonder, why didn't he just say, O Lord, my God? Why bring Abraham into this? It might seem strange to us. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that Eliezer's relationship with God was tied into his relationship with uh, Abraham because uh, God had given the promise to Abraham and the servant was on mission according to the promise made to Abraham. And if that seems strange to us, all we really need to do to understand this is go to the New Testament and realize that you and I have a relationship with God that's mediated through a person as well. Right? What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the promise was given to Jesus 
the Father promises Jesus. It's not us that merit an audience with God. It's Jesus. And we pray in his name and we uh, come to the Father in Jesus' name. And we can't forget that. That's really, really important. The phrase steadfast love occurs three times in this passage. And all three times, it is followed by the words, toward my master. Toward my master, Abraham. That's what this is all about. Lord, you made these promises to Abraham. You have made a covenant with my master. And that's what the new covenant in my blood, Wally, the new covenant in my blood, is the covenant that God the Father made with his son. And we share in that when we put faith in him. He becomes our master, right? You get the picture? So um, notice when he prays here, he says, uh, let her be the one. Let her be the one. Specifically, he says, let her be the one you have appointed. Did you see that? Let her be the one you have appointed. God of my master Abraham, let her be the one you have appointed. Please let her be the one you have appointed. Yes, this is an arranged marriage. But who arranged it? Right. And as we work through here in this passage, that's something we need to understand. It's a great... um, thing to think about because if you're looking for someone to share your life with or even if you're looking for something else in life if you're looking for a job for example you want an arranged one don't you you don't want just a career do you don't you want the career that God has for you It's, it's, it could be a great witnessing tool, too. Just, you know, tell your friends, you know, I'm, 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 yeah, I, I'm, my marriage has already been arranged. It would be a great lead-in to, to talk about the Lord and that, but it would arouse great uh, curiosity. Oh, you don't even have to be single to use it. You can, when you're talking to people, say, oh, yeah, we're, we've, we have an arranged marriage. It's a great, great lead-in for a conversation. And then you can tell them who arranged it. Right? Um, Genesis 24, verse 15 and following. Uh, 24, 15 says, Before he finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Before he had even finished his prayer, 
I love that. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 9, where God sends the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel says, as soon as you opened your mouth, we were dispatched. <laughs> I love that, right? God's involved in this. God's involved in this, and that's what we want to see. He said, before you, before you had finished speaking, Rebecca comes out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milka, wife of Naor. She's got her water uh, jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar, came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Then she had, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew it all uh, for all the camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's just watching. He's just watching. And he's getting more and more excited as he sees answered prayer. Um, this is where we meet Rebecca. It says she was uh, very attractive in appearance. That's nice. Isn't it? Looks Seth back there just grinning from ear to ear. Like... <laughs> but what really stands out here in this passage, if you read the passage, yeah, it does say that, but what really stands out is her inner, her inner beauty, her kindness, her thoughtfulness, even to animals, camels, cats. There's no cats in the story. I just threw that in there, but I think it applies. So if you're looking for a mate, let me ask you, what kind of a mate are you looking for? Well, let me ask you another question. What kind of a mate are you seeking to be? Eliezer's prayer, let her be the one. What one? The kind one. The merciful one. The one whose heart is wide open to God. That one. The leader's guide in the curriculum points out that 10 thirsty camels would drink up to 300 gallons of water. And she ran to do it. Which means that this young woman would offer to haul 2,500 pounds of water out of the ground for a complete stranger. Kind of reminds me of uh, Beverly Hillbillies where they were getting the girl. Says, says, yeah, she's pretty round. He says, yes, isn't she wonderful? I got her all fattened up for stump pulling. <laughs> so I think she was looking, they were looking for a, a mate for Jethro, right? I don't think that was Rebecca's situation at all. But just in all seriousness, think about it. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So, so you know, th this is helpful. Whether we, whether we understand uh, this, what this, the significance of, uh, of it or not, um, this is helpful because um, this servant, Eliezer, he's not, just, he's not just praying, oh, God, give me a sign. You know? 
how we pray those prayers. Lord, if this is the woman for me, then let it snow in October. Lord, if, if it's really her, then let her have a mole on her left shoulder. Or let her father have lots of money. You know, we can pray all these kinds of things. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that this man is not looking for random signs. He is guided by the sure and certain signposts of what God has already said and declared and promised. And he has connected his prayers for guidance to the certainty of God's will. Based on what he already knew about what God had said he was going to do. There's a difference. And it's an important difference. We better keep reading or we're going to be here till supper time. Genesis 24. We love those time jokes. Did you notice that? Everybody that's up here likes time jokes. <laughs> and you love to hear them, don't you? Where am I? 22? Yeah, I'm verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten uh, gold shekels and said, Please tell me uh, whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Um, she added, We have plenty of uh, both straw and fodder and room to spend the uh, night. The man bowed his head and worship the Lord. Right there and then when he heard this, he, he, he's, he's coming to his conclusion. You understand? He's coming to his conclusion, and he knows God is answering my prayer because he goes on and says, he says, he bowed his head right there, and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman, then the young woman, rich, which um, ran and told her mother's household about these, these things. <laughs> so, so do you see the connection here between God's providence and his direction? Because we're talking about God's providence, that is God's ability and willingness to provide for us. But we cannot understand God's providence without understanding his guidance and his direction for our lives. The two must go together. Verse uh, 28 to 33, or 29 to 33, or yeah, 29 to 33. Rebecca had a brother, his name is Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand aside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there uh, was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said uh, what I have said, had to say. And Laban said, speak on. Um, if you don't know already, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in the ancient Middle East especially, there was a strong convention of hospitality. 
Uh, these were deeply ingrained in the culture as almost a code of honor that you did not break. They were like strong binding customs that really served to protect both uh, host and uh, pilgrims in a very harsh environment. And uh, Jalen mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago when he was talking to us about Job, one of the virtues that st stood out before God and Satan in Job's life was his hospitality. It was considered extremely important. You didn't break those customs. And, uh, and yet, I'm sure there were people who did break those customs. Uh, because as we come into the New Testament, we're told Christians, you and I, are to be to practice hospitality, which the Greek word hospitality literally means Philadelphia, lover of strangers. Love for strangers. Uh, no, Philadelphia is love. Anyways, if it's lover of strangers is the Greek word for Philadelphia or for uh, hospitality. And so it's really, really important. So, uh, so here he is, and they've washed their feet, they've fed their camels, they've, you know, they, they've, and, and they spread the table, right? They're practicing uh, Middle Eastern hospitality at its very best, and the man says, I, I, I can't sit and eat until I've said what it is I've come to say. And they said, okay, say on. And what you have following that in uh, verses 34 all the way down to verse 49 is he recounts the whole entire story. We're not going to read it, but if you do read it, and I hope you will, it's like going back and reading the whole story again because he doesn't miss anything. He tells the whole story. Remember, this is Abraham's oldest and most trusted servant. He's seen it all. He's heard it all. He knows the whole thing. He knows all about Abraham. He knows all about Isaac. He knows about uh, Isaac's mother. He knows about the promise. He knows about the covenant. He knows about Abraham's God and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he knows about the, the promised seed. He knows the whole thing. And he recounts the whole thing up to and including his journey right up to the encounter he had with Rebecca at the well and how that whole thing went down. And so he tells the whole entire um, story. And, uh, and then he says in verse 50, And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is for you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard their words. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry, silver and gold garments, gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brothers and her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And they rose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca. They said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, 
and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah. And they said to her, our servant, our sister, sorry, our sister may not become, uh, let me try this again. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate you. And then Rebekah and her young woman, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. So question, did Rebekah know God? We're not really sure of the answer to that question. Uh, there are plenty of indicators uh, to suggest that her knowledge of God was at least very limited. For one thing, she was young. And for another thing, her family members did not worship the one true God. And uh, I don't have time to, to go into all that this morning with you. Um, but it comes up, and it comes up later in the, in the, in the later passages. There was a lot of idolatry. God called Abraham out of that idolatry. Uh, but I will say this, and I, I, this is the thing, I believe, is that even though Rebecca may not, up to that point in her life, really known much about the one true God, uh, God was very much at work in this young girl's life. And she had just witnessed the entire thing. Um, She'd just had this encounter with Abraham's servant. She just witnessed his prayerful response and then the entire retelling of the whole situation leading up to the expedition to find her and then the question, will you go with this man? So here's what I think with regard to Rebecca's knowledge of God. I think, based on the text, that this young woman did not just find a husband that day she found God. She didn't just get married. She got saved. Because she realized that this wasn't about Isaac. How do we know that? How do we know from the passage that she realized that this was not about Isaac? It's really quite simple. She never met him. Pardon? Yeah. Having not met him at all. <laughs> she never laid eyes on him. So, so you see, so you understand, she knew that this was not about Isaac. This was about God. And I honestly believe that, that day, the choice that she made was a choice to follow the one true God and his will for her life. That that's what this was about. And let me just park here for one moment and say to you that that's what every marriage should be about. In fact, let me say this, that's what every choice we make should be about. Let's just read the rest of the story got to read the ending, right? The end of the movie. You can't go to bed yet. Can't go to sleep yet. Wake up. There's only five minutes left in the show. The, the culmination, the finale, the, yeah, all those things. So Genesis 24, verse 62 through 67 says, Now Isaac had returned from Beer 
Abir Leheroi, and was dwelling in the Negeb, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. I wonder what he was thinking about. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to her servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So there you have, have it. A love story, for sure. But not a love story like we're used to. Not a love story like the love stories that come out of Hollywood. But a different type of love story. There's a lot that could be said about this. A lot that we don't have time to say or think about. But there's a lot in here that we could think about how we understand love how we understand sex, how we understand marriage, how we understand life. Because all of these things are significantly shaped by our culture, by the movies we watch and the songs we listen to and the TV and, and our educators and our friends. And, and there's a lot in our culture that is, that is shaped by pride and self, uh, self-centered self-absorption and godlessness. And we need to be aware of uh, how our views on things are affected by these things. Our world would have you believe that you fall helplessly and hopelessly in love. And the Bible doesn't have anything like that to say. Infatuation, maybe, but not love. Love is something different because love is a choice. And it's a choice that we make based on the information we are given to work with and or the truth that we choose to search out. Some point to this passage is in support of a position that you don't need a public ceremony to be married, you just need to hook up. That does not do justice to the details of this passage. Because there was very much a formal process involved in all of this. And uh, 1 Corinthians 7 says that sex before marriage is immoral. And if sex causes a couple to be married, then it wouldn't be considered immoral because the moment you had sex, you'd be married. You understand? You follow? So this passage does not justify hooking up. Just saying. But the prayer here is really fascinating and interesting. And I'm going to try to pull, pull this together a little bit in, in the closing moments here as I try to, try to close. But... It's, it's, it's interesting. There's no indication that he prayed before he went. I don't want to make too much of that because you know, any time's a good time to pray. I think the point is that needs to be made is that he already knew he had to go. There was no, no need to pray about that. He was under oath. He didn't have to pray about that. And you and I are under oath. I don't know if you realize this or not, but this, this account is, uh, of Isaac and... and um, uh, Abraham and, and, and Abraham's servant here and Rebecca is really a picture of Christ. And the father sends a son, uh, sends a servant rather, to get a bride for his son. Just like 
the fa our Father has sent his servant, which is you and I, to get a bride for his son, which is Jesus. And the bride is the church in the New Testament, right? In the Great Commission, we were under oath, every one of us, to go into all the world and get a bride for Christ. And we don't need to pray about that. We just need to do it. Now, if we do it, and when we do it, we'll be, there'll be lots to pray about. But we don't need to pray about whether we're supposed to go and do that or not. Why? Because it's already clearly revealed to us in God's Word. And that connects very much with the central idea of, of what I'm trying to draw out of this passage today, and, and that is this. That there's a direct linkage Stay with me for just another moment. There's a direct linkage between God's provision for our lives and God's guidance in our lives. Notice, if you think back, what the man prayed. He, he prayed that, that God would grant him success. And I tell you, there's a lot of people in our world praying that God would grant them success. And I would encourage you to pray that prayer. God grant me success. But make sure, don't, don't miss this, make sure that your idea of success is firmly planted in what God has said he has done and will do in this world and what your part in that is supposed to be. And if we don't understand that, we don't get that, we'll never understand what Jesus said in John when he said, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. We'll just run off and think, well, this is great. How about a new car, Lord? How about a new house? How about a beautiful wife? Not realizing that that's not the way this uh, works at all. When we think of God's provision, we, we tend to think of wants and needs. But ironically, our lives continue to lack meaning and purpose and fulfillment until we begin to realize that our existence and the choices that we make need to fit into God's bigger plan. And God's bigger plan is much bigger than our personal lives. It's a bigger story. And things like love and marriage and sex and all those things, all those things only start to make sense when we begin to understand them in their place and what God's will is for our lives. Eliezer understood this. And he prayed and he sought the provision of God according to God's guidance that he had already received. How about us? Why don't you stand? What about what about you? Have you surrendered your hopes and dreams and your choices to God's greater will for your life in his plan? That's a big question.
But it's a question we need to answer. Every single one of us needs to answer that question. Whether or not we succeed in life, really, will depend on how we answer that question. So I invite you this morning to pray with me and to allow God to speak to your heart coming out of this passage of Scripture where he's given us a tremendous example of what, it mean, what that means and what our prayers should be like. Father in heaven, I thank you again for the opportunity we have today to be here in this place and for this great group of people. And Lord, uh, our lives, uh, as we stand before you, represent many, many different circumstances. And our, our situations are, are vastly different in many ways. And yet, Lord, we all have many things in common. And this is certainly one of the things that we have in common. I just pray that right now, Lord, that each one of us, young and old alike, single, married, whatever our situation is, Lord, that we would be making uh, firm resolutions this day. I pray, Lord, for those who may be here who may be struggling with some of these choices. I pray, Father, that you would give each one of us the kind of relationship with you that we might know your will as you've revealed it in your word that we might surrender to your will for our lives and that we might find our story in your bigger story. That we wouldn't just pray and go on, go our ways and whatever, do our thing, but that we would be focused on your will for our lives so that we might have your provision for our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.